Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. We've been the last couple of weeks looking at the opening of 1 Peter, and this section is going to bring us to the, the kind of completion of his opening thought. So as we read the text, I want to do this for the last time in this series, but I want to start from the beginning so that we have fresh in our minds everything that he's told us that we've looked at, and then we'll turn with that context to our new text this morning. So remember the letter opens with these words, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. That was our text in the first part of the series where we looked at the idea of what does it mean to be elect exiles, chosen exiles. And then we continued to these words, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And so as we looked at those verses, we saw the way in which what God has already done provides a kind of platform so that we can look forward in hope to what he has not yet done but will do, to the salvation that is coming, to the fullness that is coming. And now Peter continues. He says, In this you rejoice, though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. It's a little sobering after being assured of, of your chosenness by God, of his love for you, being assured of those things and assured of a reward that is waiting for you. Now to have Peter say to you, oh, and by the way, your faith is on trial. Your faith is on trial. You are going through things now, tests and trials, to assure the genuineness of your faith. And he even uses this metaphor of gold, like being refined in the fire. Right? Gold, when you put it in the fire, what does it do? It melts. I don't know about you, but I don't want to melt. And yet this is the prospect that Peter is holding before us. The, the life you live, the faith you live, it's under trial. It is being tested. Maybe some of you like taking tests, but I would rather not be tested on what I've done or on my knowledge. I love the idea 
of a classroom where you just sit there and you absorb all the knowledge. And whatever you learn, you learn. And what you don't, you know, there's time and there's no need at the end to be judged on what you absorb. It should be about learning. It shouldn't be about testing. And yet, Peter says, your faith is on trial. It is being tested. And when you think about all the things you hate about tests, they're all there. True, false. Yeah, there's some true, false in this. Multiple choice. Absolutely. There are even essay questions, not just short, but long essay questions in this test of faith. Much is expected. Much is demanded. And this is chilling language to suddenly hear from Peter, that your faith is on trial. But there is a little bit of hope. Right? He says, your faith is on trial, but it's just for a little while. And it's only if necessary. It's just for a little while. So don't worry, it's just for a little while. But what he means by that is for your entire life. It just means this mortal life. That's the little while that he's talking about. It's only in this life that you will be on trial. So don't sweat it. Don't worry about it. It's going to be over, you know, because you'll die. And that's comforting. It's just for a little while. It's funny and frustrating. Right, to those of us who don't see through this lens of eternity, it's frustrating to be around people who do. Because what seems so important to us, to them, is a little while. Like everything that matters to us is here. And Peter says, oh, that's just a little while. Don't worry about that. And he's not saying, oh, no, life will get better. Don't worry. Like you'll just suffer for a day or two and then things will get good. No, he's saying, oh, life, you'll just suffer for, you know, life. And then things will get better. Hmm. That's the hope of eternity. It's different. It's different than the way we see things. But there is at least this. It's only if necessary. It's only if necessary. I don't know about you, but when I hear words like that, what they mean to me is it won't be necessary. Peter says you'll go through trials if necessary. And I tell myself, well, in my case, I'm sure it won't be necessary. Other people, I can understand why they may need to go through trials. But in my case, I'll probably Get a pass. It's only going to happen if necessary. And great, because that implies it may not be necessary. But it does something else as well. It suggests that behind these trials, there is a necessity. You see what I'm saying? That, that, that Peter is saying that, that, yes, your faith is on trial. And behind this trial, there is a necessity. There is a purpose that this serves. There's a reason behind this. The question is, why are trials needed? What is the necessity behind this testing? That's the question that we're going to try to answer as we look at these verses. What is the, the necessity behind our trials? But first, I want to distinguish between two kinds of trial or two kinds of suffering, because not all suffering, not all trials are the same. Right? There are things that we suffer as human beings, we suffer by virtue of the fact that we're human beings. And there are things that we suffer by virtue of the fact that we are believers, that we are, so to speak, God's chosen exiles. And those aren't the same thing. As a human being, like every human being, like every person made in the image of God, whether they believe in Christ or not, like all of us, you have a sense of exile, a sense of alienation, a sense of estrangement from your Creator. Like that you are an individual seeking purpose and meaning and, and your ties 
to the source of that have been severed. And you feel it. We all feel it. It expresses itself in different ways. That, that's a form of punishment. Or at least it's a consequence of sin. It's a consequence of the punishment of sin. That sense of human alienation, of being cut off from God, from the holy, from the divine, that's a consequence of the fall. That's the kind of thing that happens to all of us because we live in a fallen world. A world where sin and death reign. That happens to all of us. It reigns, the Bible says, upon the just and the unjust. You're going to die. Whether you're a believer or not, you're going to die. And that's a consequence of sin. It's a consequence of the fall. But not all suffering is a consequence of sin. There's a different kind of suffering that Peter's talking about here that is a consequence of being a believer. Suffering for Christ, so to speak. Because if you believe in Him, if you have faith in Christ, the alienation that you once felt with your Creator is no longer there, or at least it's being rebuilt. It's not that we never feel that alienation, but at least we feel the the restoration. Like that circuit works for us sometimes in a way it never did before as the Holy Spirit works within us. But despite that, we still experience exile. We still experience an estrangement from the world. An estrangement from the world. But that's not a punishment. That's a test. That's a test, Peter says. That's what he means when he says your faith is on trial. The the trial is enduring, living through the estrangement, the alienation with the world that comes as a result of the fact that we're no longer of the world. Does that make sense? And we've talked about this idea that to be a believer is to be one of God's chosen exiles. And here I want to suggest uh, gently a reason why Peter might want to emphasize the chosenness as he begins to speak more about the exile, as he speaks about the trial, as he speaks about the testing, why there might have been a benefit in Peter addressing us as elect or chosen exiles. Well, there might have been a benefit in him saying that God caused us to be born again to a living hope. Because I think without those things, it's hard to hear that our faith is being tested without drawing the wrong conclusion about that. The wrong conclusion would be that the Christian life is a test of merit. That what Peter is saying here is God has now put you on trial. God is now scrutinizing your faith to determine whether or not you are good enough to get in, whether or not you can, in fact, please him. It's as if what grace has accomplished is grace got you into the game. Grace bought your tickets. But now you, through your action, through the way you live, need to justify that grace. Need to show that you deserved what God gave to you. And that idea of testing, well, we react in different ways. Like some of us, a lot of us, when you hear that, it it can be overwhelming. I don't know about you, but for me to be told, your faith is under trial I don't want to hear that. I don't want to hear that my faith is under trial because I'm conscious of all the ways in which I failed the test. 
Which the last thing in the world I want to do is point to my own example and say, well, this, this is how you should live. It becomes overwhelming. It, it becomes crushing to think that it all depends on how I do in this trial. But others admittedly find this same idea exhilarating. Right? I've seen people whose lives are activated by this. The, the idea that it's a test and I've got to do good on the test. It can fill you with, with a kind of uh, zeal. right? It's like, I know, maybe I'm not perfect, but I can score better than these people. Right? And so, yeah, it, it has a different effect on different people. But all of that, I would say, stems from a wrong conclusion being drawn. And that idea of chosenness lets us hear about the trial without misunderstanding its significance. We can hear that in this exile, we must be active and sacrificial and faithful without making the mistake of thinking, ah, it's all about us. It's all about what we do and what we contribute, about our merit. We can continue to see, because of that other sort of balancing idea, we can continue to see, ah, it is God working in us to will and to do His good pleasure. And I would suggest, again gently, that losing touch with that idea of chosenness helps explain why the, the message of testing tends to turn us into either like legalistic moralists on the one hand or lawless antinomians on the other. Right? Because we forget about this, this balancing idea we focus only on the idea of exile. We forget the chosenness. We start thinking to ourselves, aha, I understand what the Christian life is about. The Christian life is about keeping the rules. It's about being good. It's about scoring well on the test, in other words. Or we tell ourselves, no, 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 nobody. Nobody can make an A on this test. So really, your score doesn't matter. And it doesn't matter any of that. The important thing, the thing that saves you, is knowing that, that you don't have to be good. So on the one hand, in order to do well in the test, we embrace all the rules. And on the other hand, thinking we've maybe seen, like we, we've thought a little smarter about the test, ah, you're supposed to fail. So maybe I shouldn't even try. Legalism on the one hand, antinomianism or, or lawlessness on the other. And I want to say what, what should balance those things is chosenness. Think of it this way. I'm oversimplifying, but... but um, like two big questions about your life in Christ. The fact that you're alive in Christ. If you believe in Him, you're alive in Christ. Well, why is that? And now, how do you live? Why are you alive and how do you live? And in a kind of simple way, we could say that, that chosenness speaks to the why and exile speaks to the how. And the problem a lot of times is is we forget about the chosenness then the only way we have to speak to the why is through the how. See what I'm saying? In other words, we start telling ourselves why I'm alive in Christ, why I'm saved, has to do with how I've lived my life. My salvation depends on how I've lived. Peter gives us another way to think about it, to balance it. Yes, you're on trial. Yes, it matters what you do in that trial, but at the same time, how you live in that exile, you live in the knowledge of that chosenness. 
of that love before the foundation of the world. There's a balance in understanding. So Peter not only tells us that our faith is on trial, he also gives us reasons to be faithful in that trial, reasons to persevere. Right? Last time he gave us one good reason that we talked about, and it was reward. Endure now because there is a reward, a reward that is coming, an inheritance, he said in, in verse 4, an inheritance that is imperishable, that is undefiled, it's unfading, it's kept in heaven for you. And I think of this mainly as an incentive to persevere. Right? You could go through anything for a season if you know that there's a great reward waiting for you on the other end. You think about stories that we've heard about ancient tribes. You know, they, they might take a captive or, or a slave and make him king for the day. And for one day, everything is lavished upon him. Everybody defers to him and treats him well. And the only catch is, well, tomorrow we're going to sacrifice you. So you're going to die tomorrow, but today we're going to treat you like a king. And you have to ask yourself, would that do it for you? Would that be enough incentive for you to, to, to be killed if you could be king for a day? Probably not. So you want to negotiate. Well, maybe could, could it be like king for a year? Maybe that would be more appealing. King for 10 years, something like that. Find your number. Like how much kingship would you need in order to be willing to be sacrificed? That's the idea, incentive to persevere. Personally, me, I like the idea of uh, reversing it a little bit. I would like to think, Mark, you're going to suffer a lot today, but tomorrow you're going to be king for the rest of your life. Like today, you're going to have to endure a lot of pain. Everything is going to go bad for you. But if you endure today, then when you wake up tomorrow, everything will be perfect. That sounds good to me. And that's not exactly the offer that's being made here. It's more like you just have to endure for your lifetime. Just endure for now. But then everything will be made right. Then you will reign as a king. That is literally the prospect that Peter is holding out. All you have to do is endure for this little while, and then you will reign as a king. Not then you will lord it over people, but then you will experience all of the, the joy, let's say all of the, the pleasure of that royal life. That's the incentive to persevere. Of course, enduring pain does change your idea of what a good reward would be. If you've noticed this, but when I was younger and I had suffered nothing, my idea of reward was so much larger than it is now. Like sometimes my idea of a reward is like just being able to go to sleep and forget that today ever happened and that would be good enough. Right? That would justify everything I went through today just to be able to go to sleep and it not be today anymore. Because sometimes I think the more you suffer, the less of a reward you need. Right? It changes your idea. It's interesting, for people who really suffered, I think sometimes about uh, if those who are wrongfully convicted, like someone whose innocence isn't established for 20 or 30 years, you know, advances in DNA testing make it possible to know that the, the guy we all knew was guilty was innocent. And then he gets out of jail decades later, and what do you do? Write him a check? doesn't seem like enough compensation for what's been lost. And yet a lot of times, people who've endured that, the, the idea of, of 
making a payday out of it isn't really what seems satisfying. Like the reward is freedom. The reward is, is a sense of peace. A sense of justification. What you've suffered changes what you see as a reward. And I think there's something deeply spiritual about that idea that, that you could go through things so that your sense of what you want at the end isn't I want to be rich. I want to have the, the car of my dreams. I want to live in this palace. But, but I want to have peace. I want to be at peace. I want to be justified. Not guilty. What we suffer can change what we see as a reward. And Peter actually gives us more than just an incentive to persevere. He reveals to us the meaning behind the trial. The meaning behind the suffering. Not just the cause. I don't mean that he reveals the cause of the suffering. I mean that he gives us the rationale, the reason why it's happening, the meaningfulness of the trial. Which is interesting because we know that, that suffering is meaningless. Pain is meaningless. You see people suffering. You see bad things happening in the world. It is pointless that this evil is taking place. It is absurd to us is the way that we often react. So that if someone says to you, oh, look, I know people are dying, but there's a meaning behind it all. It's like, okay, you're trying to excuse something really evil. This, this is glib and trite. And so I cautiously assert to you that Peter says there is a meaning behind these trials. And I say it knowing that usually when people come to us and say, your, your suffering, your pain is meaningful, it feels like a cop-out. It feels like we're trying to just justify an injustice. That's not what Peter is doing, but he is looking at this in a completely different way what we tend to look at these things. Right? Where we look at, at suffering as a pointless waste, a tragedy, an absurdity, Peter sees something else going on. I should say, though, I do think that, that there's something good in that sort of moral instinct to resist like easy explanations for the meaning of suffering. I think that the good in that instinct has to do with our, our sense of creation. Like when we find ourselves in the presence of death, for example, even though like death is a part of life, we know like everybody dies and it's been happening for as long as we've been around, it's funny, we still grieve at funerals. And, and, it, and we don't just grieve at like the funerals of the very young. Like, like, oh, you know, they shouldn't have died so young. People even grieve at the funerals of the old. They even mourn at the funerals of those who were sick. Doesn't make sense unless you have a deep sense that there's something not right about this. There's a kind of wisdom that tells us to accept death as a natural part of life. That tells us to do the opposite of what Dylan Thomas said, to, to go gentle into that good night. And yet, we still fight it. We still say there's something not right about this. The world shouldn't be this way, and I think that instinct is good. And that we're right. It shouldn't be this way. The suffering that we see, the trials, the torment, the resistance, the estrangement, it shouldn't be that way. And we shouldn't make peace with it. But you cannot make peace with something and still recognize that there's a purpose for it. You know, a lot of times when we want to say that that suffering is pointless and meaningless, we're really speaking from a kind of philosophy. There's a, a philosophy behind that that is bankrupt. And it's, it's the idea that there is no meaning to anything. 
that the world is not inherently meaningful at all. It is all meaningless. And if everything's meaningless, then obviously suffering is meaningless too. But Peter believes and we preach a world that is inherently meaningful, that is full of purpose, full of God-given meaning. There's a story. Some of you have heard me tell this story before, but uh, there's an essay of Robert Louis Stevenson's that I can't read without just bursting into tears, which is why I'll only ever tell you about it. I will never read it to you because it would be embarrassing. It's called The English Admirals. And it's uh, this, this Stevenson essay where he collects all these stories about English admirals and the crazy things they did, their exploits in war and that sort of thing. And, and the kind of eccentricity that he focuses on is, is uh, stuff like uh, Admiral Nelson when he, he goes to, uh, is it Abakir? Uh, he goes by Egypt anyway. He sails his ships in. And as he's doing this, he puts a whole bunch of flags on his mast. And he does it so that if the French cannon shoot off like nine of his flags, they won't think he struck his colors. He's just going to put up so many flags they know that he's never going to surrender. There's one guy when the, the English are fighting the Dutch in the, the 1600s, uh, there's just two English ships on the Thames and the whole Dutch fleet is coming up to attack them. And so one admiral says to the other, don't worry about it, I've measured my mast and determined that when my ship is at the bottom of the river, my flag will still fly above. It's that kind of stuff, the sentimental sort of uh, male heroism. But he tells a story about the Marines of the Wager, the ship the Wager. And this was a story that was famous in his own day and forgotten now. Basically, what happened was the ship the Wager, it, it um, was shipwrecked in the Pacific, and all of the men on board uh, were, were basically marooned on this island that wasn't on any of the charts, they had a boat, but it wasn't large enough for everyone. And so the Marines, who were on the ship, volunteered to stay behind so the sailors could take the boat. So the sailors sailed off in the boat, and as they sailed off, the Marines aligned themselves. like They, they, they got in their rows on the beach, and as their compatriots sailed away, uh, they all cheered, God save the king. God save the king. Or the queen, actually. God save the queen. Many years later after being captured by, I guess, the Spanish, and, and there was a, a whole lot of stuff, those Marines finally made it back to England, and they finally told the story. And then these guys were hailed as heroes. But, but Stevenson points out that when they did what they did, they had no idea that anyone would ever know what, that they did it. There's no way that these guys did what they did because they wanted to establish reputation, or they wanted to be seen as heroic. Yet he praises this action of theirs as being something Glorious, because it was glorious. And what really happened was a bunch of guys died on a desert island. And by the time anybody knew about them, they were just bleached bones in the sand. But in that act of sacrifice, Stevenson says they did something glorious. He's not praising the fact that they died. He's praising the way that they died. That's what Peter's getting at here, about the meaning of the trial. If you can understand that, that Robert Louis Stevenson can see like the death, and not praise the death, but praise the way that the men chose to give their lives. He says they chose, they had no choice about giving their lives, but they chose to give them nobly, he says. That was the glory. The glory. And that's what Peter's talking about in verse 7. Glory is the meaning behind the trial. 
He says, so that the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Your suffering isn't meaningless. Your trials aren't meaningless because your faithfulness in suffering is glorious. It's not glorious that you suffer. It's glorious how you suffer. Not glorious that you die. But glorious that you give your life nobly. There will come a time, we're told, we find ourselves in the presence of Christ and we'll cast our crowns down at His feet. I think what Peter is saying is, why wait? Why wait? Maybe start casting them now. Because the whole point of that is sacrifice. To take all that you've been given, all that you've achieved, and give it away. To put it at His feet to show His greatness. The idea that kings would bow to Him, it's not because God's like, you know, I really want to fill heaven with lots of kings and royal type people, so the tone is really good. No. It's that it shows His greatness as they humble themselves before Him. That's how we glorify Him. And I think we talked last time a little bit about things we need to recover, things we need to remember about ourselves. I think this is another thing. Like Peter has a sense of, of, of the glory behind things that, that is hard for us to see. And I think it is one of those things Christians used to see better. I mean, you don't have to go back that far. Like the age of Robert Louis Stevenson and before, and, and, and people were obsessed with this idea. Obsessed with this idea. They, they knew, they believed that, that, that merely living wasn't enough. That there were circumstances in which it would be better to die than to live. And to do it nobly, handsomely, gloriously, meaningfully. It's hard for us to imagine that. But to endure in trial is to glorify Christ. So Peter's not saying, when he talks about the reward to come, he's not saying... Yeah, life is hard and thankless. It's a meaningless slog, but don't worry, eventually it'll all be worth it. And sometimes it does feel that way. Life does feel that way, but even in, in this, even in, in that hardness, there's a meaning, there's a purpose glorifying Christ. And the purpose of, of our trials is to cover Christ in glory, to, to justify, to vindicate Him, to praise Him, to show His greatness. That's how we're meant to live. What our lives are for is to do that. In saying these things, Peter is teaching us how to live. He's answering the question we're always asking, well, how are we meant to live the Christian life? This is it. This is it. Glorifying Christ through endurance. The glory of Christ is what is at stake in our lives. That's what's at stake in our lives. We shouldn't live with our heads down, undercover. We shouldn't live angry and resentful, fearful and distressed. We should live with an eye to His glory. And what would glorify Him? This, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is working in you not just so that you can squeak by. The Holy Spirit is working in you not just so that you can manage to hold on. The Holy Spirit is working in you so that you can endure and glorify Him. He is working in you to glorify God. 
Peter knows that too. Peter also knows that the way to be faithful is to love. I have a lot of friends who are educators, Christian educators, and they love the fact that now, more than ever, Christian parents are interested in giving their kids a Christian education. That's that's the positive. But here's the negative. The negative is what a lot of parents see as the purpose of education. The problem is that most of us think of education as a means of um, job preparation. My kid needs a good education so he can get a good job, so he can pay his bills, etc., etc. And because I'm afraid that if I give him his job training out there, he will be corrupted, I want to give him safe job training, therefore I need Christian educators to do that. And my friends who are Christian educators find that deeply frustrating being told, basically, I want you to give my kids safe job instruction because they see the purpose of education as being different. But it's actually impossible to do the thing that, that, that their parents sometimes want them to do. Like, we can't give your kids safe job instruction. That kind of education is never safe. The only thing we can do is to teach them to love the good. But the positive is that if you can teach that, The other stuff you don't need to teach. If you can teach them to love the good, then they seek the good out of love. They educate themselves. They have a desire not just to be uncorrupted, but to be saturated in the good. And I would suggest to you that that's the purpose of all Christian education, both what happens in Christian schools and also what happens in the church. It is about educating us to love the good, to love the good, cultivate. Think of it that way. Not just educating, but cultivating the love of the good. Cultivating the love of the good. Because if there's love, then the rest follows. Love doesn't need instructions. People who worry about how to love, you know, when you're young, you're dating, you're thinking, well, I want to be sure that I know how to love properly. I want to know how to recognize true love and, and all those things and how to behave you know, as, as someone who loves. And if I could get some bullet points on that, that'd be really helpful. Well, once you're in love, you realize how silly that was. And yet, isn't that the way that we approach the Bible? I really want to be faithful. I want to be sure to follow God in all the right ways. It'd be really helpful if I had bullet points that allowed me to see how to be faithful to God. And when you love him, you realize how silly that was. Love doesn't need instructions. Right? Love provides the prompting that's needed. And if there is no love, then no amount of instruction will help. No amount of education, no no matter how many rules or bullet points or suggestions we get, it won't mean anything without love. Peter says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. You believe, you rejoice, but first, you love. I think this is one of the most beautiful passages in Scripture. It's it's certainly the most beautiful thing, a beautifully stated thing that Peter is going to give us. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Peter commends God's chosen exiles because they love Christ. They believe in Him. They're filled with joy. Filled with His glory. Even though they've never seen Him. They've never even seen Him. 
Peter had seen. Peter had seen, and now he's writing to people who haven't. They don't have the advantages. Peter had walked with him. He knew him. Remember the story of Thomas, doubting Thomas, right? Who really gets a bad rap because I think Thomas is just like a sensible guy. If, if your, your buddy who died, you show up and all your friends are saying, oh, guess what? He rose from the dead. Would you take that on faith or would you say, yeah, I'd like to see this? I think you'd want to see before you just committed yourself. And when he sees, sure enough, he does what he ought to do. He confesses it. You know, he confesses. He believes. And Jesus says, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. I think Peter must have that moment in mind as he writes these words. This love for the unseen Jesus leads to the salvation of your souls. So if you want to be faithful, like you hear that your faith is on trial and now you're like, ah, how do I be faithful? The answer is to cultivate love. To cultivate love. Your faith is on trial. We're going to come together as a church constantly. We're going to meet and we're going to discuss the Bible. So it it makes sense, right, that, that we should be equipping you to be faithful. And we should be training you to be faithful. Where, where's the training? Like, where can I sign up for the class on how to be faithful? Where's the, the class where we teach how to, like, win the, the trial of your faith, to pass the test of your faith? We don't do it like that. Because that doesn't work. There's no class. There's this. There's this. We don't do it by teaching you the rules for faithfulness. We do it by cultivating the love of Jesus Christ. That's what worship is. That's what we're doing this morning. And every Lord's Day, we are cultivating the love that leads to faithfulness. We could get together and talk about loving Jesus. Or we could do what we're doing right now, which is love Him. Love Him. Sing about it. Pray about it. And yeah, talk about it. This isn't preparing us to love Him. This is loving Him. What we're doing this morning is an act of love. We learn to love Him by loving Him. As you grow in love, you grow in belief. Lord willing, you grow in godly joy. So what we're doing right now in this sermon, we're not trying to talk about loving Him. What we're trying to do is love Him by talking about Him. That makes sense. And talking to Him. So your faith is on trial. Just like gold is tried in the refiner's fire. And and like I said, the problem is in the fire, gold melts. Gold melts. But love doesn't. You think about the book of Daniel. Those three young men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Their trial in the fiery furnace. These are the men who would not bend the knee to King Nebuchadnezzar. The king... He wanted to be worshipped. He wanted everyone to acknowledge his power. And these three young men say, you know what? We're not going to do that. And when they're confronted and and when they're threatened with the fire, this is what they say. They say to the king, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, but if not, they say. They recognize, hey, maybe, maybe we will be consumed in the flames. Maybe it's not God's will 
to deliver us. Maybe the point of this is to glorify Him by giving up our lives. But if not, they say, be it known to you, O King, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Maybe God would deliver them and maybe He wouldn't. And regardless, they would worship Him. They would glorify Him even if it meant giving themselves up, dying for Him. They were prepared to perish, but God was determined to be glorified through them. So as they're thrown into the fire, when the king goes to look, to see like their, their bones in the flames, he looks and he's baffled because they're untouched, unharmed by the fire, and, and also not alone. Nebuchadnezzar says this to the men who are standing around him. He says, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire. They are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. And the boys in Nebuchadnezzar's furnace loved Christ, and he walked with them. And Peter says, there are fires burning all around you. Your faith is on trial. Those fires burn, and as they burn around you, love Jesus. Love Jesus. Cultivate the love for Him. And as you love Him, He walks with you. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.